Thank you to each one who participated in our service tonight. We have a lot of families away, taking children to Victory Valley, depositing workers at Pinebrook, and so we're thankful for the opportunities that those individuals have to serve the Lord. Before we actually begin tonight, uh, I just want to make you aware of a, a situation, and that is a Pastor and uh, Carolyn Ellenson's daughter, Ruth Ann, has uh, been diagnosed with uh, breast cancer, and she's having surgery on Wednesday. So we ask you to keep the family in uh, prayer. Uh, it's certainly a, a very serious uh, situation in which uh, she is in. So I'd just like to take a moment and pray. Our Father, we certainly pray for the Allensons. We know that they are very disquieted as a result of all that Ruthann is going through. And we pray for Ruthann and this surgery that's going to take place on Wednesday. We hear that it's going to be quite extensive. And so, Lord, we pray you give her grace. We certainly would pray that it would be effective. And that you would help her in the recovery and uh, all the adjustments that come as a result. We pray for her husband, Lord, and ask that you administer to him as well. All the family members, may they know your comfort. Uh, we seek uh, your direction and your enablement in these things. In Jesus' name, amen. We are coming to a close in our study of Job. It's not completely over. This is not my last message. But we are certainly coming to an end of the book. And in this last section, we have God's second speech to Job. And in this speech, God, in one sense, reveals the mystery of His grace. We must remember that the whole purpose of this test was to ascertain why it is that Job serves God. If you remember, Satan said it was because of all the things that God had done for Job. But if all those things that God had done for Job would be taken away from him, namely his wealth, all of his prosperity, his children, eventually his health, if these things were taken away from him, then Job would curse God to his face. Well, God's assessment, of course, is true. It's right. His judgments are always correct. And Job does not curse God to his face. In fact, Job humbles himself before God. Last week, we saw that God silenced Job. Job's response to the first speech was, Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to thee? I laid my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken, I will not answer, even twice, and I will add no more. So Job says, God, I have nothing to say to all that you have revealed concerning yourself. But, once again, 
God is going to speak to Job out of the whirlwind. And again, we make the contrast to Elijah, where God spoke with a still, small voice. Here God is thundering, if you will, and God is revealing his majesty and his power. Once again, God is confrontational and puts four questions to Job. Verse 7. Now gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you and you instruct me. So get ready, Job. I am ready to learn from you. First, are you really going to refute my decisions? Verse 8, will you really annul my judgment? Are, are you going to examine what I have done and come to the conclusion that what I have done is false and thus lay aside my judgment? Are you really going to overturn as though Job is a higher court and now Job is going to overturn God's judgments, God's decisions? Job's going to be the Supreme Court. Job said, God says, Job, are you really going to annul my judgment? Are you going to find fault with my justice? Verse 8. Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Are you going to find fault with the process or with the decision that is going to enable you to set it aside? Are, are you really going to come to the conclusion that I have either made a mistake or overstep my bounds. Thirdly, are you more powerful than I am? Verse 9. Or do you have an arm like God? Job, can you really do what I do? Can you not only judiciously bring me to account, but then are you able to carry out your own judgment against me? Are your words more weighty than mine? And can you thunder with a voice like his? And the obvious answer to all those things are no. The point, God is not unjust in his decisions nor limited in power to fully execute them. Job has in essence been questioning the way that God is governing the universe. So God raises more questions for Job with the intent of humbling him further. First, would Job stand in judgment over God's justice? If Job is able to execute justice, then he should array himself in splendor, thus delivering himself from his present plight. Job is in misery. Job is in turmoil. Job as boils from the top of his head to the sole of his feet. His situation is deplorable. And God says, all right, Job. If you are going to find fault with what I do, then, verse 10, adorn yourself with glory and splendor. Clothe yourself with honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at every proud man and bring them low. Look at every proud man and humble him. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them in the dust together. Shroud their face in the grave. If Job can do that, then Job has power over his own life. Verse 14, then I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. Job, if you can change your plight, I'm going to be the first to say that you have the power by your own hand to save yourself. You can alter 
your position. But not only is Job incapable of finding fault with God, he can't do anything about his situation. He can't change it. He can't even silence the friends. And is that what Job would really want God to do if he could? See, here's a measure of a lesson on grace. Job, do you really want the wicked to be crushed? Do you really want them to be destroyed? Do you realize what that is going to mean? And do you realize what the implications are and some of the things that you have said? Now, God describes two very powerful beasts of creation. The behemoth, though created like Job, is more powerful than Job. Look at the behemoth, which I made along with you with and which feeds on grass like an ox. What strength he has in his loins. What power in the muscles of his belly. His tail sways like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are close-knit. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs like rods of iron. Here is this huge, powerful beast. And God says in verse 15, I made him along with you. Uh, I created you both. However, God can subdue Behemoth. Verse 19. He ranks first among the works of God, yet his maker can approach him with his sword. God has no power, uh, no problem in in subduing Behemoth. Behemoth is not afraid of the rest of creation. The hills bring him their produce, and the wild animals play nearby. Under the lotus plants he lies, hidden among the reeds in the marsh. The lotuses conceal him in the shadow. The poplars by the stream surround him. When the river rages, he is not alarmed. He is secure, though the Jordan should surge against his mouth. He's not worried about the rest of creation. And Job cannot subdue Behemoth, who is a creature like Job. Can Job capture him? Verse 24. Can anyone capture him by the eyes, or trap him and pierce his nose? Can you pull in the Leviathan with a fish hook, or tie down his tongue with a rope? Can you put a cord through his nose, or pierce his jaw with a hook? Can Job humble him? Verse 3. Will he keep begging you for mercy? Will he speak to you with gentle words? Now this behemoth, Leviathan, we don't have any clue as to what this animal is. Some commentators have made them dinosaurs. Some talk about rhinoceroses. All kinds of different things. We're clueless as to what these animals are. I would even go so far as saying maybe they're mythological animals. The point is, here is this huge beast that Job readily recognizes that he has no power over. Verse 4. Will he make an agreement with you for you to take him as your slave for life? Can you make a pet of him like a bird or put him on a leash for your girls? So, can, uh, Job, can you walk this? You know, it, it uh, kind of reminds me of the Flintstones. Remember? And they have uh, the Dino, the dinosaur, and they have him on a leash. And they, they uh, walk him around and Bam Bam plays with him. But uh, God says to Job, Job, 
Can you turn this into a household pet? And the answer is, no way. Verse 6, will traders barter for him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can he fill his hide and harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Job will soon learn his limitations if he tries to take on that creature. Another one of these funny statements that I enjoy. If you lay a hand on him, you will remember the struggle and never do it again. Okay. Job, you, you try to go hand-to-hand combat with this beast, and uh, you're going to remember it. And you're never going to try that again. Uh, it doesn't have a, a chance. Any hope of subduing him is false. The mere sight of him is overpowering. God is not obligated to do anything for man. If man cannot subdue behemoth, then mankind surely cannot bring God to account. No one is fierce enough to rouse him. That's behemoth. Who then is able to stand against me? Here is this fellow creature. I made him just like I made you. And you can't even humble your fellow creature. Then how in the world are you going to bring me into subjection? Is God's question for Job. Even if mankind could bring God to account, he would have no case. For all things belong to God to do with as he pleases. Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. What must I do for you? God asked Job. What do I owe you? And the answer is nothing. That's a a question that we need to put to ourselves every so often. What does God owe me? What does God owe me? Some people give their testimony in such a way that they talk about all that they have given up in order to serve the Lord as though now God ought to be extremely thankful that uh, they were willing to sacrifice all of this in order to serve Him. Uh, No, no. We can never bring God into our debt. God does not owe us anything. Any goodness that we receive from God is a testimony to His mercy and to His grace. But He doesn't owe us anything. See, mankind fears to approach Behemoth. How much more should Job fear to approach God? Job 41.12 I will not fail to speak of His limbs, His strength, and His graceful form. Who can strip off his outer coat? Who would approach him with a bridle? Who dares open the doors of his mouth, ringed about with fearsome teeth? Here's the the picture. uh, A bridle. And uh, this bridle evidently has a bit. Who's going to come up to this animal and try to put a bit in its mouth? Its teeth are awesome. Verse 15. His back has rows of shields tightly sealed together. Each is so close to the next that no air can pass between. They are joined fast to one another. They cling together and cannot be parted. His snorting throws out flashes of light. His eyes are like the rays of dawn. Firebrands stream from his mouth. Sparks of fire shoot out. That's where I'm saying this could even be a mythological uh, animal like a dragon. But the point is, here is an animal that, that Job would run from. He's not going to confront this animal. Go over to page 5. 
Well, bottom page 4. 41.25. When he rises up, the mighty are terrified. They retreat before his thrashing. So Job's going to run from this beast. Verse 33. Nothing on earth is his equal. A creature without fear. He looks down on all that are haughty. He is king over all that are proud. This is this behemoth or Leviathan. Everyone would run before him. The incredible thought here is that mankind does not fear God. Job wasn't afraid to say, I would like my day in court. I'd like to appear before God. I'd like to bring up my side. God says, you wouldn't even want to approach BMO. Yet, you have no fear in standing in judgment before me. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are the ones who not fear to come before God's presence. Uh, we need to have a holy fear of God. We need to understand that He is not our equal. We cannot pass judgment upon Him or teach Him anything. So Job's response. First, Job knows that God has the power to do all things. I know that you can do all things. There's no question about that. Secondly, Job knows that God has a purpose in all things, and that purpose will be accomplished. No plan of yours can be thwarted. So, Job knows that whatever is happening in his life, he knows that God is behind it. And that's true. Even though Satan is bringing these things into Job's life, he's doing so only at God's permission. And God has set boundaries for what the evil one is able to do. Ultimately, ultimately, God is over all things that happen in creation. And God does not apologize for any of his decisions or anything that happens within creation. When we look at God and think that's unjust or unfair, we've got to remember who we are and who God is. We need to be humble before God. Thirdly, Job knows that he does not have the wisdom to call God's actions into question or even comprehend what God is doing if we're explained to him. Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. In the first speech, if you remember, God says, you, don't, you didn't make creation, you don't govern creation, and thirdly, you don't even understand how creation works. And I liken that into the human body, and we're trying to understand more and more about how the brain functions, how DNA works. We're trying to understand how our universe functions. We don't even understand how it works. In the New Testament, Jesus said to Nicodemus, if I speak to you of earthly things and you don't understand, when he said you must be born again, he said, how in the world can I speak to you of heavenly things? Job 
uh, he's, uh, Jesus says to John, if you don't understand, uh, Nicodemus, if you don't understand this much, you will never understand that. Uh, we are never going to understand God's ways in this life. I think that that glorious truth that uh, we will be like Him, we shall know Him, is the thought that for the first time we'll get a glimpse of what God was really doing on the face of this earth. We're going to understand the big why questions one day. But we don't understand them now. Next, Job humbles himself before God. He has learned through experience what Job had previously only known in theory. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you answer me. Job said, my ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So here Job comes to a place of repentance for what he had said. He said, my ears have heard of you, but now my eye sees you. There is a world of difference between what we know in theology intellectually and what we know experientially. In all cases, we know far more intellectually than we know experientially. The Bible says there's a peace that passes all understanding. Meaning that we can't, we can't fathom the peace that God is able to give. Not only can we not fathom it, but we certainly have not exhausted it experientially. In the book of Ephesians, it says that he can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. It hasn't even come into our minds to ask God to do what he is able to do. We can't even imagine the alternatives that God has. That's why we shouldn't instruct him in prayer. We might come up with two or three or four scenarios when there are an infinite number of ways that God can work and move. But we need to be humble enough to acknowledge that what we know theoretically, theologically, is far different than what we experience in our everyday life. And most Christians fail in speaking of an experience that goes way beyond what their true experience is. It's one thing to talk about these things in theory. It's another to live them out. And we need to humbly acknowledge before one another <laughs> that we struggle to live these things out. You know, uh, we are not to worry. We're to cast our care upon Him. I've often said I'm a worry ward. I worry about a lot of things. I don't know that experientially. I know it up here. I can, I can explain it. And I can make reason for it. But yet, it is beyond my pale of experience. God, Job says, God, I always knew that you were wiser than I. I always knew that you were more powerful than I. 
I always knew that. But yet, for some reason, experientially, Job had not submitted to what he knew to be true. And that is that God is wiser than he, and God is more powerful than he. We need to submit ourselves to what we know to be true of God. And uh, one of those ways is by humbly accepting what the Word of God teaches and not standing in judgment over it, not questioning the miracles, for example, that are depicted in the Scripture. You know, that's one thing, quite frankly, that, that I, I, I've never understood the problems that people have with miracles. Uh, I, I, that's one area that it just... If God created the heavens and the earth, if God spoke this world into, into existence, then certainly God can intervene in this, in this earthly existence and bring water out of a rock or cause a man to walk upon water or do whatever the miracles are. Pandot, uh, the creator of all things, do simple miracles. And the answer is yes. But yet, how often, you see, experientially, do we question and do we doubt things that we know intellectually to be true? So, we have to guard ourselves. But the most important thing is that Job does not curse God, but rather Job humbles himself before God. Remember the test, Job 1.9, Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Hast thou not made a hedge about him, and his house, and also his possessions? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in thy land. Put forth thy hand now, touch all that he has, he will surely curse thee to thy face. He didn't. He did. He humbly served God as a result. Conclusion. First, God has a purpose in all that God does. Now, we, we look at Job's life and uh, Ray Arnold uh, spoke a couple weeks ago, made reference to Romans 8.28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And uh, he was speaking about what that good is. And uh, I appreciate all that uh, Ray said. And that goodness is ultimately the image of God. He is creating within us an image like the Lord Jesus. All that Job experienced, as awful as it was, is ultimately going to be a blessing in Job's life. As righteous as he was, as perfect as he was, as committed as he was, Job grew in his knowledge of God through all that he went through. And Job learned things about God and about himself that he would never know apart from the experience. The psalmist in Psalm 119 says, It's good that I've been afflicted. There are so many lessons that we can only learn through hardships, through difficulties, through trials. We learn about who God is. The children of Israel learned about who God was when they came to 
the river and it had to be crossed. And they couldn't cross it except that God performed a miracle. They learned who God was when they were in the wilderness. And there was no water to drink. There was no food to eat. We learn who God is in times in which we are forced to trust Him. When we are at wit's end. When we are powerless to deliver ourselves. Just as God confronts Job and says, Job, clothe yourself with majesty. Clothe yourself with power. There are situations in our lives. Sometimes it's our marriages. Sometimes it's with our children. Sometimes it's with our health. And all of a sudden, we realize that this is beyond my control. I can't fix this. I can't change this. I'm helpless in this situation. That's a good place to be. To recognize our limitations. And be willing to acknowledge those limitations. B. God is just in all that God does. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. It is out of place for mankind to pass judgment upon God. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will concerning election? It is beyond our capability to pass judgment upon God. But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? It is beyond our right to pass judgment upon God. Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? And so we are brought to the same place that Job begins with. And that is, why do we serve God? Why do you serve God? Why are you faithful to Him? Why do you pray to Him? Why are you here tonight? Why do we as Christians commit our time, our money, and our resources to God? Two answers. The one answer is because of what we get out of it. That's what Satan said motivated Job. It's because of all the things you've done for him. But don't uh, protect him and he will curse you to your face. How many have heard of uh, seed faith giving? Have you heard, heard that term, seed faith giving? The whole thought of that is if you just give a little to God, guess what he's going to do for you? He's going to give you much. And so, some of the radio and TV evangelists tell you to go put it on a credit card. Go borrow money and give it to this ministry. Take it as seed faith giving, because if you will just give God a little, He is going to just open the storehouses of heaven and pour out His blessing. So, why give to God? Because you can't outgive God. It's a subtle approach that's had time and time and time again. Why pray? Because the blessing is going to be incurred to you. Because of what you're going to get out of it. What you're going to get out of it. The biggest obstacle to faithfulness in the Christian life is when people think that Christianity doesn't 
work. What does that mean? It doesn't work. It means that they have invested themselves in a proposition. God, if I do this for you, then you certainly are going to do this for me. And when people do these things for God, and their life doesn't turn out to be what they had hoped it to be or what they expected it to be, then they think God is unfair. God is unjust. He didn't hold up his end of the bargain. He didn't pay his debts. Because we gave our lives to serve him. And look where it's gotten them. Where the real thought is that we should serve God not because of what he does for us, but because of who he is. He's the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. It's our privilege to serve God. It's our duty to serve God. It's our responsibility to serve God. And the reality is, we have no choice but to serve God. Right now, because of God's great grace, He asks us to serve Him. He begs us to serve Him. He invites us to serve Him. But when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There will be no rebellion. There will be no resistance. There will be no one who can thwart God's purpose. There will be no one that can change God's mind. No one is going to be able to raise a rebellion against God. No union is going to be formed. It's over. It's over. We have the privilege of simply serving the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And all that He does in our lives are issues of grace. We do have the constant reminder and God is very, very concerned about how He is viewed. He is concerned that He be viewed as being loving and just. And He is. We don't have a dictator. We don't have an a merciless God. God is not like mankind. You know, when kings, dictators, take the throne, what they usually do is murder all of the opposition, all of the insurrectionists, all the rebels. They just take them out and shoot them, hang them. Stone them. Do something to them. But they are merciless. God, in His infinite mercy, allows puny mankind to shake their fist against God. You see, God could humble. God could remove all evil in a moment. And one day He will. But understand the cost. In order to remove evil... That means that wicked mankind has to be eradicated from the face of this earth. Understand the grace and mercy of God.
that far exceeds our grace and our mercy. Because most of us really wouldn't care if the wicked were eradicated from the face of this earth. But God does care. And the scripture says he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Let's pray. Our Father, help us. Help us to serve you for the right reasons, because you are God. And you are a loving God. And you are a just God. And you are a merciful God. And you have purposes and reasons for our lives that that we can't know. Our lives are like Job's, who doesn't understand the heavenly scene. Who doesn't understand what's taking place between Satan and God. Lord, we don't understand the reasons for the things that come into our lives. We don't know what you're doing in our life. We don't know what you're doing in the lives of our family. We don't know what you're doing in the lives of our neighbors. We don't know what you're doing in the life of the church. And we don't know what you're doing in the world. We simply don't know. We are not in any place to pass judgment on those things that you bring into our lives to bear. We, we don't know why. We do know that you have a purpose and we know that all things work together for good. But beyond that, Lord, we, we are clueless. Uh, and Lord, we humbly acknowledge that so often we talk about things that are way beyond us experientially. We talk as though we have all the right answers, and yet our lives are lived with so much doubt and uncertainty and rebellion and fear. Oh Lord, help our experience grow. Help our knowledge of you to increase. Lord, open our eyes to understand your word, so that when your word speaks to us, it's like that mighty, powerful wind that spoke to Job. Oh Lord, may your word so overwhelm us that it goes far beyond affecting our intellectual processes and actually reach to the innermost recesses of our hearts that, Lord, we become transformed. Transformed in being humble in our relationship to you and to one another and loving and kind and peaceful. Speak to us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, and we are dismissed.